0: Welcome back, you're listening to In Situ Science. For each episode, we meet a different scientist and find out what a life and career in science is like behind the scenes. I'm your host, James O'Hanlon, and this episode, I'm joined by sports scientist, physiologist, and lifter of heavy things, Mandy Heckstrom. Mandy. How are you going? Good. I should have asked Is Mandy your proper scientist name or is it Amanda?
1: Um, Hmm. I publish under Amanda because it makes me sound more grown up. (laughs) But but, um, Mandy's what I'm known by. All right. Fair enough.
0: (laughs) Now, you're a sports scientist. Yep. So I need your advice. I, I have a casual interest in exercise. I like exercising and reading about different diets and that. But I go online. And I can't make sense of a single thing <laughs> that's on there. It's either contradicting everything else, or just waffle. Yeah. As a sports scientist, can you make sense of anything? Online?
1: Honestly, our whole field is—it is actually a bit of a minefield. So mm. uh, we've even within the scientific literature, because it's still quite a, I guess, a recent field a lot of the findings are contradictory because things haven't been well controlled in the research, Mm. which means that when you've got all the um, kind of online presence of all the people in the fitness industry Mm. who don't necessarily understand the limitations of the research, they're drawing conclusions that aren't really evidence-based. So Mm. um, really reading... On the internet, I would recommend people to have a look for the sports science academics who have um, kind of blogs that Mm -hmm. are aimed at general populations rather than just people who've, um, you know, probably got a good body and post some good Instagram shots and, (laughs) (laughs) and look good. They may not necessarily know the best or safest way to exercise.
0: But saying sports science is a new field... As, as a non-sports scientist, that seems surprising.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, it, it, like it has been around for a long time, but in terms of the understanding of the intricacies of exercise, so you know, people might have looked at the you know in the past, of a, in a crude sense, say the difference between running and lifting. Mm but then not really controlled the variables, say, for example, in lifting. So all the different things like sets and reps and intensity and whether it's failure-based and the surrounding nutrition and rest periods and all of the little components that affect how we adapt. Mm. So I think only in sort of the more recent years have um, things been a bit more well-controlled, which means we've been able to actually understand what's been happening.
0: I mean, lots of that sort of... Well, it's not really really a debate, but people like to debate that sort of stuff online. Yeah, you know, do you do low numbers of big weights, or you know, everything contradicts everything else. Is is there now new knowledge coming out that clears up some of this? Um,
1: yeah, like there are some general guidelines that can be applied for most, to most people, but I guess the um, the issue is that everyone adapts differently, and then so if you have Two people in the same training program for example, mm. and you have one person who is sleep deprived because they're a new parent or you have one person that has a high stress job so changes in hormone responses you have one person that um, eats a different type of dietary follows a different dietary regime to someone else you have genetics on top of that mm. you 've got all of these other factors so while you know Joe blogs here might respond to a high volume, someone over there might respond to a low volume. And, you know, to, to complicate that even more, even if you respond to a high volume at one point in your life, it doesn't mean you're always going to continue to respond. And that's where paradise training comes in. So most people will respond to most types of training at a certain point. It's just about manipulating things and continuing um, to stress to stress the body and adapt. Mm. So it's, it's not as simple as people think.
0: <laughs> For an individual, is there any way to know what you're going to respond to, or just do it. Listen to your body. Yeah. I
1: really believe you can. You listen to your body. And I think a lot of um, beginners, either two things happen. They, they go too hard too quick and end up mm. hurting themselves, um, or they actually don't realize what their body's capable of. And on the other end, they tend to not push themselves. And this is, you know, so people go to the gym and they... They're not working out at, at a hard enough um, intensity. The weight's not heavy enough, so they don't adapt, and then they don't stick to it. Mm. And then they don't get to kind of get to that point where they plateau and need to manipulate the prescription to get further adaptations. So,
0: uh, so can I ask your quick opinion on some fads? Of course. I uh, love fads. <laughs> carbs? Are they evil? Should I we all be going keto? N-
1: no, 100% not. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, no, carbs are amazing. I love donuts and fries. And <laughs> um, No, I... Um, Again, everyone is different, but Mm. the research does not support for the majority of people, particularly healthy people, that keto diets are beneficial for um, performance or for weight loss. So the majority of the research on diets shows that basically adherence is the number one Mm -hmm. factor. So not necessarily what you eat in terms of a weight loss perspective, not markers of health. So um, if there's a diet you can stick to, you're going to lose weight. Mm. Most people respond best to nothing drastic no cutting food groups no um you know so that could be anything from paleo through to keto high carb low fat whatever you want to call Mm. it so adherence is the number one issue rather than a magic diet that is kind of going to get you ripped
0: what about uh fasted cardio (laughs) (laughs) i've been hearing lots about this lately i don't know if it's a new thing or it's just Right. I've seen.
1: Um, so that's a definite. Um, well, in my opinion, it's a. It's not beneficial. So I've recently published a paper on mm-hmm. fasted cardio, and we. It was basically just a meta-analysis, so that's pooling of all the data in the field rather than kind of new and original research, and we showed that doing fasted cardio didn't result in superior weight loss compared to doing cardio in a fed state. So the theory has kind of been around for years, and it stems kind of from the bodybuilding field where the thought was if you did fasted cardio your body would use its fat as a fuel source yeah. but the difference between acute and chronic in terms of one exercise stimulus versus long term is quite different in what the body uses for a fuel So the research doesn't seem to support um, Fasted cardio, but it also doesn't necessarily show it's a negative thing So there is some research showing that you may actually lose more muscle mass if you do fasted cardio Which long term is not great for those wanting to gain muscle or just for body composition in general um, But if you are just interested in losing body fat, which the majority of the population are, there is no benefit. There's also no negative. So again, it's kind of like diets. Do what mm-hmm. works for you. Do what you can stick to. If you're happy to go for a run before eating, do it. If you need some toast,
0: do it. Yeah, I'm definitely yeah. not. If I can't do anything yeah. without food... No, neither can I. <laughs>
1: fast it is not like... Fast it is two hours for me. I, can't.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, is it, is it that easy to make your body start digesting its own fat and i mean that like we're talking about keto before sort of some of the logic behind that right is that if all your body has is lots of fats it will just start digesting them and stick with digesting those
1: yeah there's so many so many issues here that complicate the thing um the processes involved in that and i'm not a nutritionist and i Mm. don't understand them intricately um but i mean my understanding is when if you're looking at keto for example one of the big factors is most people don't actually enter ketosis they eat too high protein so they actually don't enter the physiological process which is meant to use fat as a fuel so they kind of don't don't even get there but Mm. if you do you've still got there's still there's adipose tissue like so your fat mass that you're trying to lose and then there's intramuscular um and fat stores within organs Mm. so your body's not necessarily going to say oh, you know what I'd like to burn that fat off my butt it's mm. gonna you know it's gonna come off here when I do keto <laughs> so I I think it just it, the body's not designed to mm. use fat as a fuel um so I, I just yeah
0: and it's probably also a good point too is lots of people still think that if they say do lots of crunches that fat immediately (laughs) right there their stomach is going to be used up but
1: it's completely not the case (laughs) yeah yeah and again that's another one of the biggest myths that um we have to kind of debunk when we're um just even teaching our students what um how to act professionally as trainers and exercise Mm. physiologists is giving this information to the general public that you know all of these myths then they're not true you can't spot reduce your body fat tends to um be removed in the pattern of deposition. So basically, what that means is where you've put your fat on, the order is kind of similar. And males and females are going to be different. Mm-hmm. Different people are different. Um, so, I think, you know, some, so say for example, um, you know, a middle aged male that has a lot of adipose tissue around his tummy. So he has a, a I guess you could say, a beer gut. Mm-hmm. And then he's done lots and lots of sit ups and then he's lost fat from around his. Bear gut he thinks well, the sit ups targeted that mm. fat you know that's not the case it's probably that he did nothing before he was sedentary, all of a sudden he's done exercise, burned more energy, has a caloric deficit. The fat is inherently for him stored around his stomach, so he loses it around his mm. stomach but it's not that simple if you're looking at you know perhaps um a female who's more pear shaped but she also wants a six pack you know mm. it's it, it just it, spot reduction isn't a concept with any
0: Scientific so you just have to it. have lucky genes. Uh, yeah. Or you <laughs> just
1: have to maintain healthy nutrition and exercise <laughs> for the whole body. And yeah. then you'll have whole body results. Yeah. yeah, Which will hopefully target the area, whatever it is that an individual would like to target.
0: You might not know this. Do you know, is there a reason why fat gets deposited in some sort of order? I think especially?
1: it's hormonal. Oh, okay. Yeah. So um, for females, the fat deposition tends to be legs and hips and for males around the um, mm-hmm. midsection. So the fat around the midsection is actually more dangerous. It's linked with um, more chronic diseases and risk factors for chronic disease than mm-hmm. the fat around the around the hips. All
0: right. Yeah. Uh, one more fad I yeah, want to right. ask you about. Just intermittent fasting. Right. What is mm-hmm. it is. It, is good as they say it is (laughs)
1: um again again, i'm 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 not a nutritionist so this is kind of my take on it all so intermittent fasting there's a lot of different um types of intermittent fasting so all it means is for periods of time you don't consume food and Mm -hmm. more often than not you're allowed to consume water the um The kind of popular intermittent fasting or version of it at the moment is the 5-2 diet where people eat what they want five days a week, then two days a week, they restrict their caloric intake to a set number. Mm -hmm. So it's not strict fasting as in you're not eating, but it's really restrictive in terms of what you're eating. Again, the research really seems to show that um, adherence is the key. And if it works, it works no better than other forms of um, dieting. And the thought is that the reason when it works, it works. is because of the overall lower redu- uh, reduction in caloric intake. Mm-hmm. So by having those couple of days of fasting, you're reducing your overall weekly kind of consumption of food. However, depends on what you do on those other five days. So if you say ate normally for those five days and restricted calories for two days, you're probably gonna lose weight. Mm-hmm. But the way the diet is worded and sold to the members of the general public is you can do what you want on those five days, mm-hmm. you should still diet on those two days, and You'll lose weight, but that's probably not the case because if you're going to do what you want on those five days, you might have half a dozen beers and a Big Mac and fries, <laughs> and you know, and then overdo the two days of um, restricted caloric intake so you don't actually see any weight loss. So it only mm. works if everything else kind of is in balance as well.
0: Now, this has been lots of diet talk, but obviously, your area is strength training and resistance training, yeah, it is. Yep. I'm looking at how that impacts all. Well, not just muscles itself but other areas of health and lifestyle.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I'm interested in all the modalities of resistance training just from a personal perspective and sport um, and sport performance, but my research relates to resistance training and its effect in clinical populations.
0: And what sort of uh, benefits you've been looking at uh, breast cancer survivors. Yeah and how resistance training can help them again as a non-sports scientist person the the link between those two ideas seems yeah. odd <laughs> well
1: so um in terms of cancer um cancer patients and cancer survivors they undergo a whole lot of treatments that are really hard on the body mm. um being overweight um for one to so excess body fat is linked with development of cancer in the first place so bringing in any form of activity for anyone at risk or with chronic health conditions is really important so i've particularly decided on um, research and resistance training in breast cancer one because of my personal interest in the modality and what i think it, um, why hypothesized could um, help with as well as um, previous research had shown things like bone mineral density in breast cancer survivors Um, becomes diminished because of the treatments that they take. And resistance training is the gold standard for maintaining and improving bone mineral density. Um, Muscle mass, loss of muscle mass is also really important um, in just aging in general, as well as in chronic conditions. So if you have less muscle mass, you're at a greater risk for falls. And um, obviously as you age, if you have osteoporosis, when you fall, it's a lot more dangerous than if a young person falls. Muscle mass is also it's a really important um, metabolic tissue. So it's linked with um, glucose regulation in terms of type 2 diabetes um, and things like that. So muscle mass is a really, really important, um, important thing as we age. Breast cancer is commonly, um, commonly suffered by people in the aging population. So we've got the effects of aging and a chronic disease as well as the treatments. So I wanted to have a look at um, what resistance training um, would would do in terms of their immune function. So I know, again, that seems a little bit random, but everything in the body is interactive. So we get signals and hormones and from, from, our, from our gut, from our muscles to our brain, back and forth. So there's a lot going on. So the link... It's, it's quite complex to explain, but um, in a nutshell, what I found is that um, those women in the clinical trial that I ran who were in the resistance training group had an improvement in markers of inflammation um, linked with improvements in immune function. They had improvements in quality of life, improvements in fatigue, and also obviously improvements in muscular strength. So it was all around um, a pretty successful intervention. Other researchers have done like much more large-scale studies with bigger kind of patient cohorts, and they're starting to look at um, kind of a bit more in depth in the mechanisms of how resistance training might be, um, you know, eliciting these
0: adaptations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think, yeah, that's the bit that interests me a lot because, as you read it, you've you've got. And if if I said you had an underpants gnome problem, would that metaphor play out? <laughs> no, I'm not sure. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> It's a a Scythe Park reference, early days of Scythe Park. They had the underpants gnomes where they came in and their business plan was step A, steal underpants. Step B, big question mark, step C, profit. (laughs) So I feel like these kind of things are, you know, step A, do resistance training. Step B, what happens in the middle before we get to improved... Uh, immune responses and...
1: Partly, yeah. So, I mean, before I did the study, there was research showing um, improvements in immune function from chronic aerobic exercise in cancer patients. Mm. So um, immunologists had looked at that link, they just hadn't looked at the specific modality. And I think um, where I'm wanting to take this research is I want to explore the link between... the adaptation to resistance training in terms of hypertrophy and the link with inflammation or change in immune function. So, I'm currently working on a study with a PhD student who's um, looking at the effect of resistance training on the gut microbiome. So mm. it's kind of a model to look at, you know, inflammation or um, you know, gut health, and see how that relationship translates to hypertrophy. And then what I want to do is link it all together.
0: All right. So yep. something to do with the microbiome might be in the middle there somewhere. Yes.
1: Yeah. 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 So I've kind of <laughs> skipped a few tangents. Um, <laughs> it's a,
0: yeah. So no, yep. hyper, hyper, hypertrophy, hypertrophy.
1: Yep. Hypertrophy. So the growth of muscle. So yep. rather than like when we're examining resistance training in terms of, of the scientific field, we ch- tend to look at two things. Change the muscular strength. Mm-hmm. So how much weight we can lift and change the muscular hypertrophy, like how big our muscles are. Mm-hmm
0: because yeah. we were talking with gal winter on the podcast a while yeah, ago right. who was also yeah. doing things about the link between uh your depression and the microbiome yeah, and, it's and that's another one where it's sort of we can see these two things are really clearly linked yep if only we could figure out exactly yeah. how and why yeah to be able to control this a bit more
1: exactly and it's probably a few years down the tracks i mm. mean the technology is only kind of it's evolving, right? Mm. So the, the ability to analyze the microbiome in a cost-effective manner, it, it hasn't been possible for that long. Mm. So exercise microbiome studies, they are really in their infancy. Mm. So as far as I'm aware, our clinical trial on resistance training in the biome is one of the first in the entire world. There oh, might right. possibly be another group doing it at the moment, um, but we are kind of at that cutting edge of exercise biome work. So there's been some um, exploration, I guess you could say, about people... Um, who exercise and people who don't and what their biomes look like mm. and people who compete in sport and people who don't and what their biomes look like. Same with people who suffer um, from, say, depression, what their biome looks like and what other people's biomes look like. So what we're trying to do is is um, seeing whether we can manipulate that biome. So some of the evidence shows that people who... Um, it's actually it was a, a group of rugby players in ireland they have, <laughs> they, have they have greater muscle mass um, they eat more protein but they have a more diverse biome and a more diverse yeah. biome is linked with um, better markers of health mm-hmm. so it's it's a good thing yeah. so what we want to know is if we have a, a bunch of people if we put them through a training intervention designed to increase muscle mass are we going to see an improvement in the diversity of this biome which may possibly have implications for health mm-hmm. so this is the first step there's There's about a million flow-on questions I want to look at, but because we haven't, and the literature, no one's one's done this before, we have so many unanswered questions that we're having to start with the real Mm. basic. Like, simply, can resistance training influence the biome? And then, if it does, is it mediated by a change in muscle mass? So, perhaps, do we have people whose biome improves dramatically and they also manage to gain significant muscle mass, Are they linked? And then, again, how do we manipulate that in clinical populations? Do we need to add things like protein supplementation, probiotics, all of Mm. that? That's years down the track because we're kind of still establishing the the ground stuff.
0: Well, yeah. we should clarify: the yeah. microbiome we're talking about is your your gut yeah. flora, essentially the yep. little other Bugs. organisms that live inside <laughs> you. Yeah. When you're doing these studies, how how do you sample people's well, microbiome? It's not
1: glamorous. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, we we have these fancy kits that help people at home to collect. Um, their poo. To
0: use the technical term. Yeah, to
1: use the technical term. And then they store them um, just in their freezer at home in these little um, biohazard bag things until they bring them into us, and then we process them. So. We go through a series of steps. Um, Stick
0: them in a blender what do you do? Yes, right?
1: no, literally, you <laughs> joke, but it's a breville spice grinder. <laughs>
0: so, so we
1: have to homogenize it, which the reason we do that is we want to get a representative sample of, um, of the fecal matter in the digestive tract. So if we mm. just took a sample of... Um, someone's poo then we might not get a true representation of you know everything they've been eating and what's mm. going on so we have to blend it all up which is not <laughs> great it's it's not great at all um and then what we do is we go through a series of um, kind of experiments in the lab which then allow us to extract the dna which is then sent away and then um, it's sequenced and it comes back with all of this just this wealth of information in terms of the types of bacteria and how, um, you know, how many of them there are and how many different types of them Mm -hmm. there are. And then we have to analyse all that and figure out what's going on. (laughs) So we are only looking at bacteria. We're not looking at um, viruses or other cells.
0: Hmm. Yeah. But this study looking at strength training and yep. the microbiome is ongoing, right?
1: Yeah, so it is. So we've just wrapped up for the year um, for 2018, but we are continuing at the start of 2019. So mm-hmm. we're looking for healthy people um, aged, oh, do you know what? I can't remember the exact cutoffs, I think 18 <laughs> to 40, who aren't currently participating in structured exercise. So, you know, if you're going for a walk or two, that's okay, but not currently going to the gym. So Alan, he's my PhD student, he's fantastic and what he does is he runs people through a training program for 12 weeks in the gym so you Mm. basically get you know, one on one personal training where you've got an instructor teaching you how to exercise, you have to provide um, stool samples at multiple time points and you do a few other strength tests but what it's going to do, it's going to allow us to answer these questions but you basically, if you want to participate so we are looking for people, you get a free gym membership at our, well it's not really a membership but you get free access to a gym with a trainer. If you're randomized to the control group, you still get a few sessions with Alan, who's an accredited exercise physiologist, where he'll teach you kind of all the things you need to know. So that will be kicking back off in January in the new year. Um, And I think we probably, I think we need about only another 10 or 15 people. So All right. we're so close it's a win win. Either you're in the yeah. treatment
0: group and you get free personal training, or you're in the control and you get licensed to be lazy for 12 <laughs> yeah. weeks. <Is> yeah,
1: <laughs> until the end, and then you get taught how to exercise, and then you're expected to go away and exercise. <laughs> but, we're, but we're not following up.
0: So if you want to volunteer, you have to well, either be in Armadale or at least be able to get to yeah. Have, campus.
1: Yeah, you have to be in Armadale um, or willing to come to campus to train three yeah. times a week for three months so obviously in the close vicinity
0: yeah, i have to see you training so you're not <laughs> cheating yeah, yeah yeah exactly yeah. <laughs> but in terms of uh strength training you're you're someone who puts the money where their mouth is yeah <laughs> that you do a lot of it yourself
1: yeah absolutely what, what
0: came first for you the science or the sports
1: ha, do you know what it kind of all came together so <laughs> i've always played sports i've been a competitor competitive athlete in team sports growing up mm. um and then I was a competitive athlete in team sports while I started my sports science degree. Um, <laughs> and then it was kind of as I came into my postgraduate studies, I found competitive lifting. Right. Um, so I was already a competitive lifter before doing my PhD. All right. And,
0: yeah. well, what were your team sports of choice?
1: Um, so I have played representative cricket and hockey. All
0: right. Yeah. How, how do you then make the jump to weightlifting?
1: So I, uh, I've always been quite, I guess, powerful. Um, hmm. In hockey, I was a goalkeeper. Um, and I've always enjoyed strength training and then a friend just kind of suggested I have a go and <laughs> I, I had a go and next minute I had a coach and was in a program and yep, and just all kind of went from there pretty quick. <laughs> Alright,
0: so you, yeah. how far did you take this competitive weightlifting?
1: Um, Olympic weightlifting was my first type of lifting and I um, won national championships um, mm-hmm. at that and was initially targeting the Commonwealth Games but... I um I was training a lot and I was going to have to do put in a bit more work um to try and get there and I was doing my PhD so mm-hmm. I actually I made the decision to give up Olympic weightlifting to focus on my career during my PhD um and that's when I found powerlifting <laughs> which is slightly <laughs> different so Olympic lifting is the snatch and the clean and jerk powerlifting is bench squat and deadlift so
0: So snatch clean jerk those words mean up from the grind up above your head head. yeah right
1: and the other ones are kind of more like standard gym movements just how much can you lift yeah so for the Olympic lifting I needed you know I needed a lot of coaching and it was a lot of commuting to train with squads powerlifting because of my background and understanding of the body I decided I'll just train myself and have some fun so i could get in the gym on my own six in the morning didn't matter i wasn't letting anyone down i missed a session i got to i wrote my own programs and nine months later i represented new zealand at the commonwealth championships and then went from there (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah. so what what sort of weights are we talking about Uh, in terms of like olympic olympic weightlifting moves I, i'm too scared to try It's <laughs> kind <laughs> yeah, sort of weights, they're kinda
1: confusing yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> what sort of weights were you lifting um that?
1: so i guess everything snatch at 56 kilos clean and jerk 72 mm. um i'm just going back to competing in that now and i'll be competing in the under 55 kilo body yeah. weight class so um more than body weight anyway yeah. and then powerlifting, obviously the numbers are a lot higher because mm. it's easier but Olympic lifting is way more fun. <laughs> yeah.
0: It's terrifying. Yeah, now. it it's is. going terrifying. And that's why it's fun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So in terms of training for this stuff, weightlifting is things that other athletes would do for conditioning. Yeah. yeah. What do you do to condition for weightlifting, or is it just about um, lifting heavy things?
1: So it used to be, when I was training before I started, for my PhD I was Olympic lifting probably five six days a week mm-hmm. then when I went to powerlifting same thing I was probably training five six days a week mm-hmm. um, specific focused movements um, now I'm coming back to Olympic lifting hopefully aiming to compete internationally next year but I, um, I've recently had a kid so I'm, <laughs> my whole lifestyle is a little bit different yeah. and my willingness to commit um, to training is probably at about 50 percent so i'm doing a totally different training program now i'll do a couple of days in the gym where i just do general strength stuff and then one or two days where i'm doing olympic specific mm-hmm. and then every now and then i go for a run because it's good for me but i don't enjoy it and i I'm, I'm not very um committed to running and stuff but i do it because it's good for my health so <laughs> yeah so yeah. it's a little bit different the training is very different now
0: yeah yeah so in terms of you know, your research which is looking at your general health and your own yeah. stuff which is kind of like their extreme athleticism yeah. really are there are the two is the science behind both of them comparable or once you're yeah. an extreme athlete is your physiology so different that you have to play by a different set of rules?
1: i don't think so i mean all
0: of it all of it does link in because it's just about
1: understanding how to manipulate exercise to elicit a certain adaptation right mm. so for the people um, in clinical populations, depending on what their kind of deficits are, you know, you want to manipulate training to allow it um, so it's easier for someone to put their clothes on in the morning or to get on and off the bed or to sit down on the toilet. Uh, yep. You want to make it so it's easier for them to do the laundry, you know, mow the lawn. So you have to look at what function they have and what function they want. You design a program around it. And it's just the same for me in training. Mm-hmm. You know, I can lift this, but I want to lift that which means I need to improve strength however much what do I need to do to improve that so it literally is about manipulating the training variables in an appropriate manner so obviously the kind of loads and volumes I put on myself are mm. entirely different from those in a clinical population but the science and the thought process is similar mm. yeah yeah
0: mean getting back to the the misinformation that's out there this is yeah. another area where it's you know yeah do i do five sets of five or three sets of ten or yeah. go to failure and all that stuff is that another thing that just depends on the individual and what you yeah. want to do
1: and on your um current point in your training cycle so all of those mm. things you just mentioned i do personally okay. every single one but at different times yeah. so i might do a three sets of ten for you know i don't know a couple of months i'll do five fives at some point i'll train to failure for a block and i won't train to failure mm. for a block so each each set is training something, or each kind of method is training something slightly different in theory. Um, and the body needs a continuing stimulus to continue to adapt. So all of those things are beneficial. And I think in um, in the clinical population, so the people that aren't you know um, inherently healthy, in the early days of exercise um, science and clinical work, people. Prescribed way too lower dose exercise, mm-hmm. so they weren't getting benefits because the intensity, whether it be cardiovascular fitness or something like running or lifting, it was too light. So the health benefits come from more intense exercise. Mm-hmm. So where we were for years saying healthy people should be exercising, you know, a little bit harder, but oh, sick people they shouldn't. Mm-hmm. But in essence, the sick people need these adaptations more than the healthy people. Mm-hmm. So the intensity is fundamentally important, and for the majority of clinical populations. they they appear to be able to handle intense exercise safely. Mm. So obviously there are going to be caveats, there are going to be individual um, conditions where that may not be the case and individual patients where that may not be the case. But for the most part, we're starting to see much greater gains in shorter time periods. Mm. So for example, um, my clinical trial work in my PhD on cancer, it was a 16-week intervention and um, my lady suffered no adverse events and they had strength gains similar to that seen over a two year training programme mm. because I trained them hard. I taught them to squat, bench, and deadlift because they can. Mm. They they have the ability to do it and their body then adapted further, which allowed them, you know, greater improvements in their quality of life and ability to conduct kind of daily tasks.
0: Do you think that weightlifting and resistance training still has a bit of stigma about it? Yeah. In, in what way do people think they're going to get hurt or so it's just for Yeah, Why? no, well, that's exactly
1: it. The number one thing I get from um, a lot of women, especially older women, so I think um, generation, generationally it is changing. Mm. Um, I get that I don't want to get massive, mm. I don't want to get
0: big. You don't want man arms?
1: No, no, right? I don't even yeah. have
0: man arms. Yeah. <laughs> so, and th-
1: this is the thing that the general population don't understand. To get a, in, like a, very muscular physique you have to train very hard and you have to eat really well and it doesn't just happen from going to the gym to be healthy so Mm. um, that's a really big common misconception um, amongst particularly women um, Mm. is that they're going to get a physique like um, they have an image I think of a you know female bodybuilder who's taken (laughs) significant um, performance enhancing supplements to get that body Mm. they think that will happen to them if they go to the gym which it won't um, and then I think from the medical profession, it is getting better, but you still do have a lot of um, old school, I guess, maybe general practitioners recommending rest and not recommending exercise. So that is changing, um, but it's changing too slowly.
0: Hmm. Yeah. The stigma probably comes from the other direction as well because lots of people know, think you know, cardio is going to eat your muscle mass.
1: Uh, and that- <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Whereas they don't realize, you know, you can go for a run just eat some food and (laughs) your muscle mass will be fine yeah yeah
0: so in terms of the work you were doing you know if you're a an older woman just come out of a battle with cancer yep how how do you convince them to get in the gym what's
1: (laughs) it's hard and it comes from buy-in from medical professionals i think is the number one Mm. thing that is really helpful um and then just experience from other survivors so um A lot of the women will join um say breast cancer support groups Mm. and then if they meet women there who have been part of a dragon boating team which is one of the first kind of exercise and cancer movements um that or being part of other kind of gym programs um, Mm. then they're encouraged to participate so i think years ago it was really really challenging whereas now a lot of um, the oncologists (coughs) <coughs> excuse me, will recommend joining some form of exercise hmm. program or trials if there are trials going yep. um, going on in a city at that time.
0: And they're not going to become bodybuilders? No, no, no <laughs> exactly,
1: exactly. They're just going to become healthier, stronger, and feel better. Yep. On,
0: on that point, um, I think I need more personal advice. So <laughs> you know how scientists were supposed to be uh Google-able and and have our work easy to find online, yeah. right? So... <laughs> It turns out, if you Google James O'Hanlon, more often than not, I come up second. Right. The guy who comes up first is a YouTube bodybuilder. Is he from Ireland? Right. King James O'Hanlon. So, plan is rather than become a better scientist, get a better body. If I just get ripped, yeah, will awesome. Take this guy's spot. Yeah. That, that, that should help my scientific career right
1: yeah no absolutely i don't see a floor in that at all
0: so where do i start what do i do <laughs> into the gym while yeah. eating a steak it's probably <laughs> no. <laughs> no. just yeah. work hard yeah train answer?
1: train lots eat lots <laughs> yeah pretty much
0: <laughs> i think that eating lots is actually hard right yeah You're no this stuff
1: it is so People also underestimate how much food people have to eat to um, maintain a large degree of muscle mass. So if you're talking about a very big muscular male, they have mm. a really large caloric intake and they yeah. have to eat a lot. So even when I'm training hard, I eat a lot. I'm eating constantly. I just, I'm hungry <laughs> all the time.
0: <laughs> I don't know if that yeah. works in my favor or not cause <laughs> I've discovered I don't really care about food. I don't. Yeah. Like I could just eat because I feel like I have to. Oh,
1: see, I could. I feel like sometimes I'm in the wrong field, and I should be in the food industry.
0: I love food that much. <laughs> yeah. But then I feel like it might work to my benefit because if I had a trainer or someone should. just tell me eat yeah, these eat things that. at these times, yeah, I, I fear I could just do yeah. It.
1: Well, if you could, you should get you should get a trainer, and then you'll be jet by All Christmas.
0: Right. <laughs> <laughs> <No>. <laughs> my hate index is gonna go right up as soon as I start doing this. <laughs> So you're here now at the University of New England, but you're about to embark on a new professional journey.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so I've just accepted a position at the University of New South Wales. In all right.
0: Yeah. So you're going to be teaching there, researching there? Yeah, both. So teaching yeah.
1: and researching in um, the exercise physiology program, which lies in the Faculty of Medicine there,
0: which all is right. pretty exciting. Cool. when When's the moving date? Have you got um, it all planned?
1: Yeah. So I'm moving in February, but I'm not going to start there till March. So I'm going to take a bit of a holiday and visit my family in New Zealand. Yeah. Yeah. Unwind a bit. From- <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> and then you're going to be continuing the stuff you're doing here or yeah. does it open up a whole new world of research us?
1: Both, I'm hoping. So I will continue supervising my student here, Alan, um, until the completion of his PhD. So that is the gut microbiome work. And by going back to a city, what it's going to allow me to do is go back to the kind of research I was doing in my PhD, which was exercise oncology. So Mm. being based in Armidale, you know, we've got a population of 20,000 people. You can't recruit big enough sample sizes of people um, with chronic diseases to run proper Mm. kind of research studies. So... In, at UNSW they're linked with the Cancer Institute, they're linked with the hospital um, there's a you know a lot of collaborative work that can mm-hmm. happen there with people that have just amazing expertise in areas that I don't so yeah. I'm really hoping um, to be able to collaborate with a few people and bring together um, some of the exercise oncology and biome work so I want to have a look at um, the microbiome in survivors and how that differs with treatment and then whether it differs following exercise and if so, what modality. So there's Mm -hmm. a number of research questions I'm hoping to um, get up and running there. Obviously, it'll take a while from when I um, start there in February to kind of get the big trials Mm -hmm. up and running and hopefully you know, recruit some new PhD students and stuff like that as well and get get my head around the courses I'll be teaching at the (laughs) undergraduate level as well.
0: (laughs) In terms of people that want to volunteer for this sort of stuff, obviously, if it's looking at people that have gone through cancer, you can target them in a way if it's a general yep. exercise study that yep. people want to get involved in is there a way for people to find out about these or they just have to know the specific yeah. researchers and labs
1: well normally so twitter profile so mm-hmm. i tweet sometimes um i'm gonna tweet yeah <laughs> <laughs> i aim to tweet more in 2019 um the universities often put out press releases as well mm-hmm. so for example when a trial is um kicking off, there'll normally be things on the radio and the newspapers, on social media um, about recruitment Mm -hmm. I know people have been trying to set up clinical trial databases and registries where you can register and then get notifications when trials are set up in your area, Mm -hmm. so I'm not sure kind of how far in development they are and if they're really widely used or not but normally it's kind of word of mouth so Mm -hmm. um, you know if it's a certain population group there might be doctors at a hospital who will pass on the flyers to their or whatever if it's a general study it's normally going to be through social media advertisements around universities that kind of stuff
0: yeah and just you know to be part of human experimentation is a lot more fun than it sounds no
1: it really is (laughs) and it's it's a really undervalued thing so all of these questions that we have that we want to know we can't answer unless you have people help us Mm. and it probably is the number one obstacle to doing quality research is getting enough people who are Mm. willing to participate so the the beauty I see it of our field in exercise science is that people often get something in return so a lot of the other um, you know clinical trials or something that you may be a human participant in you might not necessarily see them you know get motivating factor here often you'll get a personal trainer and a free gym membership Mm. and then you know add that to the improvements you're going to see in your health it's kind of a it's a win-win so especially in the new year when we recruit for people people have that whole post-Christmas post-holidays you know I'm going to get fit for this year etc yeah. so it's a good time to look around and see what's going on at your local universities wherever whatever city you're in because mm. there will always be exercise
0: studies going on that
1: you might be eligible to participate in
0: it's a great new year's resolution yeah participate right? in an exercise but, exactly <laughs> it's a win
1: for science and it's a win for you yeah.
0: <laughs> so, all right, well, if people want to follow you on Twitter and keep up to date with your, your new adventures,
1: what's uh, your handle? It's Hegstrom.
0: Hegstrom. Yeah. All right, and keep an eye out for you at UNSW. Yeah, sometime awesome. Sometime in the near future.
1: Thank you. Thanks
0: for joining me on the podcast. No worries, thanks for having me. And thank you guys for listening. You can check us out on Twitter at Science or at science.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.